You guys can be seated. So glad to see your faces. If you would, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 1. That's right at the front. Pretty easy to find. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. If you are a guest here today, I want to welcome you. We've prayed over our time together. We've prayed for you specifically. We didn't know who you'd be, but we prayed for you. Um, And we're glad for everyone to be in this space and in this room. Now, as you turn in your uh, copy of God's Word, I want to let you know that if you are a guest, we'd love for you to fill this out. Give it to us in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out. And we promise to contact you in a respectful way. Now, today we're going to launch for about 14 weeks a study in the book of Genesis, okay? I'm really excited about this um, for many reasons that I'll get into in just a moment. But my prayer is that God would use this time to shape how we think about who he is and who, who, who we are in the world that he's created And so I want to invite you to pray that with me. And we've got a lot of ground to cover even today on day one. Um, And so I want to get straight into God's word today. And we believe these are the words of the living God. And so we come to them with reverence and respect. In just a moment, we're going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And everyone will say, thanks be to God. So I want to just remind you that we believe these to be God's words to us about how he's acted in history. And I'm going to read all of chapter one. And the beginning of chapter 2 is a long passage, so let's just follow along, either on the screen or in your copy of God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was an evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts on the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let us make, have them... Uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he had all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day, <laughs> chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these words that tell us so much about our world and about who we are in the world. Father, I pray that today you'd redeem our imaginations, that you'd transform us, that you'd stretch these words to our hearts and show us how they're shaping and recreating and molding us today. And Father, I pray that as I do my best to expound on this te text, that you'd give me clarity and wisdom, and that you'd give us hearts that are good soil to receive your word once again. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In 2011, so a minute ago, the art world gets turned upside down. The oldest U.S. and most respected galleries in the United States suddenly shuts down. It's been open for over 165 years, displaying, distributing art in New York City, and suddenly, with little warning, it closes its doors because they've been accused of selling over $60 million worth of fake, fraudulent art. The paintings were supposed to be works of abstract expressionists, and if you don't know what that means, it just means that you probably could have seen them and not known the difference between these 
and child's art, or at least a freshman art class, okay? Unless you were an expert. But if you were an expert, you would have known that these things were at least supposed to be the work of Mark Rothko, Motherwell, or Jackson Pollock, which looks like a bunch of scribbles to most people. But these things get forged, and all of the experts are fooled. They take it in. There were all these mysteries around the origin of the art or the provenance of the art. Artwork has to have a really clear provenance. Provenance is just the story of how something came to be and how it came to be in the hands of whoever it belongs to. They considered the stories of the art and they thought that maybe these stories were sufficient. Sufficient enough to sell for a really huge price. In fact, when all of it came crashing down, it turned out that they had sold over $80 million worth of fake art. Eventually, the lady who was responsible for selling all the art goes to jail. The guy who uh, had created all of it flees to China, and they're all running. And now what do all these rich people do with what they have on their, on their walls? There's lots of lawsuits, and eventually they all settle out of court. And the point of the story is this. All of the stories around who created the art determined what it was worth and where it should be put and how it should be dealt with. That story of provenance. There's a whole industry around attribution. Who made the things that we have? And this industry, uh, there's a guy named Philip Mould. Or maybe you've seen him on the Antique Roadshow. This guy, not that this is like one of my favorite shows or anything, but he has another show called Fake or Fortune, and he explores it, and he describes the work of attribution of art like this. He says, it's a bit like a religious ritual by which a painting gets anointed. It's only by knowing when something has been painted, or best when it was painted, or best of all, by who painted it, that art historians have got something to grab onto. In other words, the only way to understand something's value is not just by the general observation of it. Does it look nice? Does it look beautiful? It's by knowing when it was created, how it was created, and who is responsible for making the thing that you're observing. This concept from the art world is true for all of creation, too. That all of us, the only way for us to understand the value of this work of creation around you, including yourself, is to know the story of origin. So how do we appropriately value life or what a good life is? How do we measure what a good life is? How do we engage with this material world around us and we sort through all the problems? What governs our lives and how we treat one another? What determines what is ethical and what's not? The answer to all these questions have something to do with how we understand the beginning of everything that you've ever experienced. And that's the reason that we would concern ourselves with what the Scripture says about the beginning. The beginning of creation, of time, of humanity, the rest of the earth, the origin of the human species, as well as all the surrounding uh, us as humankind. It's something that's primary. It's foundational to understanding what the Bible is actually talking about with the rest of the Bible. It begins with this. Where does the Bible begin? It begins at the beginning with what's primary. In other words, it begins with what's most important. And in this world today, I just want to present this with not a, a ton of examples, but there's so much confusion 
around how we might grasp onto meaning. What is our value? What does it mean to live a life worth living? And the way that we navigate the world with wisdom and courage is, I think, dealt with so clearly in the book of Genesis. Now, I've had a lot of people that, as we talked about, like launching into Genesis, there's a lot of people who've messaged me or talked to me and said, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. So there's lots of anticipation today, um, which means that there's lots of potential for disappointment that I'm feeling. There's also a lot of familiarity because from the time that you start in, in grade school, if there's any kind of Sunday school, this is where all things begin with teaching our kids about the world of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first verse I'm pretty sure that I ever learned. Maybe that or John 3.16 about God's love for the world. And in these implications of the six days of creation and the rest, all of these things, these verses in the Bible are most likely, if you've been raised in the South or even in proximity to the church, that we have some familiarity with, okay? And so that familiarity can either serve us or can harm us because in all of the places that we might be expecting our familiarity to be affirmed or maybe challenged, I just want to offer simple observations. A lot of us come also with lots of answers that we've been given from the book of Genesis. Lots of apologetics as we walk through the book. And there's a lot of things that do bring up traditionally questions about how do we deal with these things? How do we reconcile the message of these first couple of chapters of our great book, the Bible, with what modern science would say? How can we say these things to be true? And in as much as I would like to answer all those questions, I promise you that if you come into the room anticipating that all the answers that you thought you had from Genesis, or that maybe you've been promised from some apologetics class, um, you will be disappointed if that's the case. My hope for us and my prayer for us is that as we approach God's word, that we would approach it with two things, humility and with faith. First, with humility, a posture of humility, because there's oceans of ink that's been spilled about how to reconcile this book to science, okay? There's lots of people who have great confidence about what questions this answers, okay? And there's a lot of questions that maybe you, you've gained an answer to that Genesis, I don't think, originally intended to answer, okay? But there are questions that don't answer. So we approach it with humility, with the fact that this text is meant to inspire and tell us about who God is and how he's worked in creation and the role that we play within creation. So if you bring all of your presuppositions to the scripture, or if you just come here going, Lord, I don't even know what we're studying today. I'm just in the room. I'm just here. I don't know where we're going, but hey, whatever you got to say, I'm here to listen. The second thing that my, my prayer is that we would have a posture of faith, that we would approach God's word with this humility that we believe this to be authoritative. That if we have some problems with what the scripture says, we're going to come with a disposition believing that the scripture is right. Even if we can't quite understand it, we come with a posture of faith. Lord, show us how you work. The appropriate way for us to appreciate all of these things is with a posture of humility and faith. I'm reminded of when I stepped up to the Grand Canyon for the first time. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it is breathtaking. 
I mean, seriously breathtaking. It takes your breath away. It's a place where you are silent. And, and for uh, my wife and I, on our first visit to the Grand Canyon, I'm like stepping with all this anticipation. I'm about to be in tears. I'm taking it in. She's like, baby, let me ask you a question. Were we supposed to start on the south rim or the north rim? I'm like, you're mo- we're ruining the moment. We're on the edge of the Grand Canyon right now. Here we are to take it in in all of its beauty and majesty, in the same way we have to approach Genesis. There's times when we have to pause and be still and say, I've got a lot of questions about how this works out. I've got a lot of questions about how we should approach it. But the first way that we approach it is something that's just great. It's an offering for God to know how he's worked and what his thoughts are towards us as his created beings. We have the opportunity to see the mind of God. And so the theme that I'd say, at least for this first week, is this. It's going to be on the screen. The king of the universe, with powerful words, created a good world. I'm not here to argue all the potential ways that we can interpret Genesis. In fact, I want to suggest things that we could gather if we approach this text as truth, if we approach it as the truth of who God wants us to know, what he wants us to know about him about who he is and how he works and what he sees when he looks at creation. And those are the three questions I want to deal with. That's where we're going today. These three things. Who is God? He's the king of the universe. There's nothing outside of his power. And how does he work? He works by speaking things. He's always worked through his word. And thirdly, what does God see when he looks at creation? What is his first disposition when he looks at what he's made. His first disposition is this. It's good. It's very good. He's delighted when he looks at it. So that's where we're going. First question that I believe this text could answer for us is this. Who is this great God? There's a scientist, Herbert Spencer, who died in 1903, who presented five categories of which we should interpret and sort out all of reality. And the first verse of Genesis presents all five of these categories. They're these, time, force, action, space, matter. All five of these things are outlined in this first verse. And I want to put it on the screen once again. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So how, who is this God? He's the king of the universe. The first thing I want you to observe about him is that he existed before the beginning. He's eternal. Before all that you've ever witnessed, he was and is and he is to come. He's God above and outside of time. And in this moment, he enters into time in the beginning. Now, how do we understand the beginning? God is just there. It means that before all these things that are about to be spoken into existence, God existed before them. And he enters into time in this moment. Genesis 1.1. Now, historically, Christians have believed that the beginning was not very long ago. And the family narratives of Genesis would account for the nations that came to be. And throughout time, there's lots of questions that have been presented about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, whether you believe that the the world is very young or very old, okay, however you interpret this to, to be, I'm not, again, I'm not here to interpret that question for you. I do believe that there was an actual Adam and an actual Eve because Jesus referred to them as a human being. Scientifically, there's lots of theories about what happened and how those days could potentially be stretched into millions of years. But the simplest summary is 
God did it. He did that. Most of us, I, I would just present to you this, this in the most childish way that I can approach the scriptures, that when God made man, I don't imagine him looking like a one day old when he was one day old. He made him to walk and to be with him, creating and tending and to work the garden. And so however old we would have presented with a one day old Adam, I'm not sure how you, you would think, how old you would think he is. But somehow in God's mystery, he enters into the landscape of time, however you interpret it now. And he enters in speaking things into existence. The great thing about God's word is that it's sufficient. That means that the questions that are unanswered by the text do not mean that the text is insufficient to our questions. Second thing, this force, God, the source and force behind everything becoming what it is and what it was in the beginning is God. Action, he takes action. Third category, the action that he took was creating from nothing, ex nihilo, which means from absolutely nothing, God brought things into existence, both the heavens and the earth, space and time and matter. So he takes action, force in time, creates space and everything above, in space and matter below. And in these five categories, there's an outline of the who's and what's of everything that follows in creation. And all of creation happens to be his intellectual property. Now, if any of you have ever tried to create something or bring something into existence or patent something, that means that you possess it. So as the king over creation, everything that he made belongs to him. That's the first thing that we have to understand. He's acting as the king of creation and distinct from it. So what does he do? He's acting. He works by his powerful word. He's acting as king of creation distinct from it and connected to it. And this is really important for us because there's a world around us that would say, God is in everything. He's in the trees. He's in the land. He's in all these things. But the scriptures would proclaim that he is connected to it but distinct from it. He's separate from it. You don't worship the land and the trees and people will come to you and say, well, I just go out into creation and that's my church. All, the story of creation is this, that he made all the things and he holds them together, but he's distinct from them. They can declare what you should worship, but they're not the thing you worship. He acts as the king over, and he's a good king. He's not unengaged with the shaping and creating. After he brings the things into existence, first we have the heavens and the earth, and he's not done. He begins to order and fill all the things. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. After this initial creation of heavens and earth, you get this picture of creation. How does it describe it? It was without form, it was void, there was darkness, there was waters. There's this picture of chaos from the original audience. They would have understood water as being chaotic. And God's spirit, his ruach, hovers over the water and he sees all that he's made. And after the initial bringing these things into existence, he begins to act upon them. He didn't just create them, but he shapes what they're becoming. In the following uh, verses, 
you see how he takes these things from existing into order. So how does he work? He works by taking chaotic things and separating them and bringing order into them. Here's a little diagram of the days of creation. I love this because it's the simplest uh, way to understand it. First, you've got these three locations in the first three days. You've got light and darkness, sea and sky, and then a fertile earth. And then on the, uh, the second three days, he brings things into the spaces that he's created. He first separates the spaces for the first three days. And anyone who's good at organization, you know that's what you do first. That's a way in which you, you're acting in the image bearing of God. You bring things into order by saying, okay, what are the spaces where these things belong? And then in the midst of those spaces, he doesn't leave them empty, but he brings these ordered spaces and gives them agency and rhythm. First, the light and the dark. He gives the light and the dark, the sun, the moon, and the stars, so that forever these days will be ordered into days, months, years, seasons. All of these things are brought order. So he first creates the landscape. Now, this is really important, too, that there's light and there's dark before the sun, moon, and stars, because all of the pagans around the people of Israel at this point would have worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. They would, have, they would have attributed to them some order of them bringing themselves into existence. And instead of that, God says, no, there's light and there's dark. And within the context of light and darkness, there's sun, moon, and stars. They're secondary. And he doesn't even name them because the people around them would have been worshiping them at the time. So in contrast to these pagan idols, he's saying, no, I'm over all of that. The greater light, the lesser light, and all the stars in between, all of those things belong to me. Everything with fins and wings fill the spaces of the sea and the sky with agency. They freely fill the spaces. And God blesses them and calls them to multiply and fill the space. And then on the earth below, on the sixth day, he creates everything that walks and creeps on the land, including mankind, filling the space that God had created with agency and freedom, which is really interesting, right? That he would create all these separate categories for order and then he fills them with the sun moon and stars and then he fills the the land and the sky and the sea with things that move about and have freedom within those things and what I want you to to see is that God works not only in bringing creation into existence and then filling creation with his order and agency but he does it by the power of his word this is really important it's all throughout the scriptures that we would first understand that God works according to his word. Psalm 33 describes it like this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. I want you to imagine the breath of God speaking things into existence. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Here we see in a great summary what God has done in creation. He's the king over everything. He's the greatest kind of king. Whatever he says, it's going to happen. When you love that kind of power, right? Like just to say, this is what I'd like to happen. And then you just see it unfold. 
and great summary. It doesn't just show us what's happening in creation in Psalm 33. It gives us the appropriate response. Put the, the second slide back up there. It says this. This is how we should respond to this. We see it and we stand in awe of him. We fear him because of this kind of command. This puts him above everything. So we stand there in awe. And it's not just how he's worked in the past. We learn later that that's how Jesus Christ brought all things into existence at the beginning. And it's how he's working now. How does he work? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 describes it this way. Y'all stick with me. Stick with me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here's what I want you to see. He not only spoke things into existence by his word, but he's still holding us together by his word. Now, this is a really abstract idea. But here's how we're to understand it. Amazingly, he uses the simplicity of his voice to call things into existence, to order things, and then hold them together. His words still exist today. That's why we're being held together right now. He's distinct from creation and he's connected to it. His word proclaimed here is not by any authority that exists in this room. The reason that we come to God's word in the way that we do with a posture of humility is we believe that it's God's word that has power. It's the power to both convict us, to comfort us, to transform us, to reshape us, to remake us. It's the power by which we were created and we're being held together. And today, as we think about the very words and thoughts of God and we speak them out loud today, there's something significant about it. There's something supernatural about God's words today. So we come before the word of God saying, thanks be to God every week because we believe it to hold power. It's the power at the beginning. It's the power here and now. And if there's any power that will bring your chaos into order and make your life remade, it will be by the power of his word. There's significance in it. That's why we can come to the same conclusion when we look at creation and say, this thing that God did and is doing and will do in the future is good because his word continues to have power to open our eyes to see. Now, before I move to the last point, I want to show you this. Ten times God said something, and it was. He said it, and it happened. And then six times, he declares something over all of his creations. He says this six different times. It is good. After the light was made and separated from the darkness, God saw it. He can see what he made, and he said, it's good. After the dry land comes about, God sees it, and he says, it's good. After he sees the vegetation, he says, it's good. The order of the light with the sun, moon, and stars, he says, it's good. After the fish and the birds, he says, it's good. And then after everything was made, God takes a gander at all of it. And look at this verse in 131. It says this, God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. He sees everything he's made, including you and me. And before we get to the reality that, yeah, but everything's tainted by sin. 
It's all corrupt and it's groaning. I want us first to just look at it for a moment and see that God delighted in what He had made. He was joyful. See His smile over all of creation. That was His first disposition towards what He had made. He saw it and said, this is good. This thing that I've made, it was His first assessment over all of it was love and affection and delight. He delights in all that He's made. He sees it. Yes, it's broken. Yes. But before we get to Genesis 3, let's just pause in Genesis 1 for a moment and say, yes, Lord, the things that you've made are good. And we share your assessment of it. We look around us and say, this is really great. This is pretty great. So many of us experience the disposition of God as this frowning face over all that he's made. Seeing not what he made, but what it could be. And yes, he does see what we're becoming. But his first position towards us is delight. He likes what he made. And I wonder sometimes if we just lose that perspective. When we look around us and we're like, yes, we see the world is broken. We do. But we also see that the thing that God made and that he intended is just radically defined by his glory, the heavens and the earth. They're all declaring that God is good and what he makes is good. He's delighted. Do you know him as a delighted God? Like, have you ever just experienced his smile over all that he's made? Before we think in just a few weeks about what displeases God, just think for a moment about how God has just made himself happy. He's so happy. He looks at it and says, this is good. I, I really believe that we, not just as individuals, but as a culture, we need this kind of providence story. Provenance, without the D. We need to know what our roots are. Someone desperately needs to inform the world of this story that all things were made by God and they were made for his glory and he delights in them. There's a lot of really bad stories, fraudulent stories about what the world means and what matters. And the scriptures offer us this story of attribution for our lives for how we work in the world that God's made. And so my conclusion or our application today is this. Remember his power and his delight in creation. Just remember it. Maybe you've never even thought about it before. But remember how powerful his words are still to bring into the chaos his order. Remember that. For those of you who feel like your life has been a series of dead ends, Things that you anticipated are ended or over, marriages, careers, losses, grief. And the reason that I would say this is incredibly relevant for us is because this truth, God's power and his glory, might offer us great comfort and great joy ourselves. We're in need of comfort. We're in need of that. In fact, there's a story in in God's word about this guy named Job. I'm sure you've heard about it. And he has some really lousy friends. 
Really lousy friends. He loses everything he has, his kids, his money, his health, and he's just suffering. And there's these friends that have come up to him and they're like, look, you probably should have lived this way. Obviously, God's mad at you. But God comes at the close of it. And you know what he presents Job with as a comfort and correction? He presents him with the story of creation. Chapter 38 of Job, he says, uh, gird yourself up. I'm going to ask you a few questions, Job. And he looks at Job in the midst of his groveling and ashes and suffering. He says, hey, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you hold it all together? God's power, according to God, the way that he would interpret creation is he brings it into the midst of our suffering and says, let me just, let me just show you who I am. I spoke all these things into existence. Do you see the deer when they're giving birth? Nope. Do you guide the bear as they lead their cubs through the woods? Were you there for that? Did you set the boundaries of the ocean? Did you determine where they would be? Did you see when I spoke these things into existence? And Job's like, nope, sorry about that. I don't know. And then God says, okay, gird up your loins, I'm going to keep going. He continues to ask him questions. And he concludes with this, shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. <laughs> In all of the frustration of this life, there's a beginning story that God used as a comfort to those who are suffering. In all the ways that it feels frustrating, God offers himself as this, the creator over all things. That's what he brings. And Job's response was this. Okay, I'd heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. I heard about you being God and everything, but now I see clearly who you are. So for the sake of your comfort, take it in for a moment. That God spoke everything, what's underneath you right now, into existence. And then he acted on his creation and began to order it and shape it. And he invites you to trust in him in the same way. To bring all the chaos of your life, all the things that feel like this is a wreck. And he brings you to Jesus Christ, the word made flesh in John chapter 1. And offers a recreation to you to make all things new. To bring all that is not yet in your life to him. The one who actually can recreate and recreate and continue to shape. And he's not done with you. And he sees who you're becoming. Jesus is there at creation. And he's inviting us right now to see him with words of power shaping our future. <laughs> and the second part is this. He's inviting us to see him delighted. He still looks at creation with great joy. Look. Yes, all of creation is groaning to be made new, but there's still joy in it. There's delight, there's order, and God looks at it and says, this is very good. It's very good. It's messed up too, but it's also good. It's really good. And he's inviting you to know his thoughts and to see what he sees when he looks around us. And somehow I just think that maybe, you know, I'm not the only one who feels like a lot of life is just missing it. So how might we respond? I think there's an invitation for us to hear and to believe and to be made new ourselves, to believe that he's the God of power, to stop and just see it with joy, to just stop for a moment. Back in uh, 
2007, there was this world-class violinist. His name is Joshua Bell, and he's in D.C. And the Washington Post decided to do an experiment, like just an experiment on how people would respond to him. On a Friday night, he's selling out crowds at this uh, performing arts center. In fact, there's a lottery to pay $100 to listen to this guy play his $3.5 million violin, okay? He's like, he's pretty good at what he does. That's my point. Three days after this sellout crowd, they decide to film him in the midst of a busy uh, train terminal. So he goes in in the middle of it, and it's right before 8 o'clock, and so there's this mad rush in D.C., people coming in and out of trains, and they're all walking past him. He's got like a ball cap on, and he's playing this $3.5 million with a with a little uh, case open, you know. (laughs) And he stays there for a couple hours, and uh, he basically has about $32 and some change that drops (laughs) into his his, uh, case. And they just began, he, he began to explain like what it was like for him to just see the difference between the crowd that paid attention. And and it's a great article. You can Google it, find it. Um, But I believe the same thing, the same kind of thing is happening with creation every day. There's this reality around us and in us that God has both spoken into existence, that his word is still shaping, and that he's holding together today. And that he continues to offer his words to remake and remake and recreate us. And somehow it's just like we miss it, right? (laughs) So as we close, my prayer for us is that we would see both the power and the joy of God when he looks at creation. To know his thoughts as he spoke it. Such a gift, right? To read Genesis chapter 1 and to see the very thoughts of God as he assesses all of it and says it's very good. It's very good. My prayer is that for us, we would delight in the same ways that God delights. We'd see it for what it is. Creation is just telling, it's declaring, it's shouting out the glory of God. It's just all around us telling a story of how good he is and how powerful he is. And that can comfort us and it can also bring us joy. Now, as we close, I want you to know we're going to be in chapter 1 next week. And part of the next week, we're going to look at what it means to be created in God's image, to be given this distinction from all creation, that he create us with gender and definition so that we might express his glory in a distinct way. Then we're going to look at vocation. We're going to look at how God gave them before the fall, okay? Before everything was messed up, he gave them work to do. So we're going to consider how we might think about our work in this world that God made. We're going to look at marriage in this world that God made. Before things were messed up, God made man and woman for each other. He gave them to one another as a gift. So in the coming weeks, I want to invite you to pray what we've prayed this morning, that we would see God's power and we'd remember his joy in all that he's done. Would you pray that with me? Father, thank you for your word.
Pray that you would deal it in our hearts and help us to worship you as we ought, with awe and reverence, as you're the king over everything. You're holding all these things together, and you've offered us your word, so valuable to us. So I pray that we would see it as our story of origins, that we'd see it as what it is, as this offering to us to have the same kind of joy and the same kind of meaning as you shape things into existence. And I pray this for the sake of your great name, Jesus. Amen.